Right now in America, one in 10 people are currently in recovery from drug or alcohol addiction. And of those, some 50 to 90% will relapse at some point in their lives. Because of the power of addiction, many of them may never regain their recovery. Hi, I'm Ron Chapman. I'm an alcoholic with nearly three decades of sustained sobriety. If there's one thing I know about substance abuse recovery, it's that recovery is always a work in progress. Progressive recovery is a commitment to continuously moving forward every day to strengthen one's recovery. Recovery isn't just about learning how to not use. It's about the willingness to tackle the underlying issues that trigger using in the first place. Welcome to Progressive Recovery, people sharing stories from their daily fight for sobriety. If you met Phil, it would amaze you that this guy didn't have it all together. He's a big strapping fellow who played sports in high school and was a cheerleader, a guy cheerleader in college. And uh, he's a great career, very, very talented professional. But the backstory is that he was born in Texas and he was adopted, presumably because his mother was a teenage mom and, and didn't think it would be wise to, to raise him on her own. So. He spent some time in an incubation ward uh, due to some difficulties with his birth. And the good news is uh, he was adopted by a really loving family in South Central Georgia. Phil, uh, <laughs> Phil did really well in the world, uh, except that, as he would tell it, he was living a lie because it was all fake because he thought there was just something, something flawed about him. That would explain for him the adoption as he would later come to understand it. And with time, all the effort trying to perform, trying to be a good boy, as he might say, trying to go to church like he was supposed to, trying to stay out of trouble, one day he discovered alcohol, drugs, and, and yeah, even at a young age, prostitutes. And that's a really complicated story that he may choose to tell you. Regardless, it started a, a role with alcohol, drugs, and prostitution that continued well into his early adulthood. What you need to know about Phil is that he could keep it together on the outside while his life was falling apart on the inside. The alcohol and drug use just accelerated over time, so much so that the day came when he literally dropped off the map on the West Coast where he was pursuing his career. Uh, family and friends tried to find him. They eventually tracked him down, and for all intents and purposes, they dragged his ass back across the country. He was willing, but um, only barely. When they got him back to, to Georgia, they got him in treatment, and he got sober, clean and sober. And he jumped into the recovery programs, AA specifically, Alcoholics Anonymous. And it, it seemed like he was flourishing there. He certainly stayed clean and sober, except that the moment came when he couldn't stay clean and sober, and, and he relapsed, as they would say in that world. He, he went back out, but he couldn't tell the truth about it. Way too much effort had gone into trying to do it. And they would just see it as yet one more failure. So Phil hid it, and he hid it until he really couldn't hide it anymore, and his life was getting ready to explode. And it was at that point that he finally began to have, let's call it a transition, that began to change this. So Phil, it's really good to spend some time chatting with you. Thanks, Ron. So this deal about hitting bottom, right? I mean, that's the way you would say it, and others would say it, is they hit bottom, 
and then suddenly it becomes possible to get sober. So tell us about hitting bottom for you. Well, before we dig into that, I think it's really important to talk about what alcohol and drugs and sex with women did for me. And, you know, I, I experienced around nine or 10, some sexual trauma. And um, it went on for a couple of years and it was very confusing. I didn't know what to do with it. Um, confusing how? It was confusing. It, it was a, it was a, a, a peer of mine, a male mm. um, friend that was a year older that I played sports with. And, um, and it, it was, it was confusing because on one hand I understood that it was bad but I didn't understand the feelings that I had around it. And what was even more confusing was going to church with family and the way that I felt in church with that going on. Yeah. And based on, I don't really know why, but I couldn't talk about it and it ate away it so that as a teenager and that, you know, that feeling went on for years, Ron. And, and, you know, regardless of what I did, whether I succeeded or I fell down, it never went away. The feeling never went away. The feeling never went away. And it was this gut feeling that something's not right. There's something wrong with me. Okay. And now I understand that the combination of that sexual trauma combined with the abandonment before the adoption, I was right for no self-worth. And so everything, my whole strategy was to make sure those close to me were okay with me. And it was a fool's errand. It didn't work. It couldn't work, but I didn't understand that at the time. So the feeling kept being produced worse and worse deep inside me. So when I found alcohol and drugs, it took that away. It took it away. It covered it up. And that's a powerful solution for a 15 year old. That's a very powerful solution. So over the coming years through high school and college and work, that was always there as a backdrop. I knew how to get rid of that feeling, and it worked for quite a while. So, so this is interesting, Phil, because I've heard it said in the recovering community that alcohol and drugs was the solution to a problem that you couldn't solve any other way. Is that what you're saying? I am saying that, and I'm very clear that it really wasn't a solution, but it felt like a solution. And with the horrible feeling I had deep down that I couldn't share, it was an extremely powerful solution. I didn't know what else. That worked. worked. Yeah. So how does that set into motion what eventually became your bottom? Well, it sets into motion that I'm already ripe for the feelings I have, and I can't get rid of them. They always come back. No matter what. No matter what. So it happened in early recovery. I was close to two years sober. What age were you when you got sober? Uh, I was... Early 30s when I initially got okay. sober. And this was 32. when they dragged you back from That's the West right. Coast. Okay. That's right. And as you mentioned in the intro, recovery did take. The obsession to use and drink left me. Okay, okay stop right there. The obsession to use and drink. Say more about the obsession. So I had experience leading up to my dropping off the map in, in California of waking up not wanting to drink or use and drinking and using, not wanting to seek out sex with a woman I didn't know and still seeking out sex. 
the thing that was really hard to handle was even when I didn't want to do it, I also didn't want to think about it, but I had no power to keep the thoughts away. Okay, so rest assured there's some listeners who are saying to themselves, oh, come on, I can not do that. That's a cop-out. So like, and I'm, I'm sure you thought that yourself. Why is that not a cop-out? It's not a cop-out because it was my experience. Uh-huh. If I could have woken up and not drank or use, I would have. And the cycle that was horrible to experience was when I couldn't carry it out, it only made myself worse, worth picture even worse than it was before, which was, was non-existent. So it just primed you again to go around the cycle one more time. It was a never-ending cycle for me. And so it was especially frustrating being in recovery, feeling like I'm doing the deal. In hindsight, I wasn't fully honest. I was incapable of being fully honest. Fully honest about? About a lot of my past, about a lot of the thoughts that were in my head. Again, in hindsight, I see that my shame that started at a very young age produced in me an an inability to really be authentic with others. So I did come into recovery. I did work the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I did talk to others. I did get involved, but there was something missing because after a little more than a year of the obsession to drink or use being removed, that was huge for me. It came back and it came back with a force Along with the feeling. All of a sudden out of the blue? Well, I think what's probably more accurate is it built up. But I do remember specifically sitting in my apartment in Greenville, South Carolina. And the thought as a whisper and a poke on my shoulder. Hey, what about this? So, so, okay. So there's a question, right? So would you guess then that, let's put it this way. Being deprived of your solution, alcohol, drugs, sex, whatever, that it was building up because you weren't getting relief? That's exactly it. Um, I have, my experience tells me that I bump into life and I always have bad feelings about bumping into life. So even in recovery, without being able to get the relief and, 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 I guess the connection that I needed to keep that at bay or have it removed wasn't there. So at that point, that was like 20 plus years of using alcohol, drugs, and and women to cope. Yep. Now you're essentially clean and sober, Mm -hmm. but you're going cold turkey and you're still left with all those feelings. That's exactly right. Um, and, and, And the other piece of that is... After a year, I moved up from my parents' house to Greenville, a big promotion at work. I went from my daily commute being from the second floor down to the basement to driving 20 minutes. You mean minutes in your parents' house? In my parents' yeah. house. Okay, got it. To a 20-minute drive and managing a team of 10. Um, so I was ill-equipped to handle life. And so that's when things started popping up the feelings, the thoughts about drinking and using, 
Um, and that combined with my inability to be authentic, to be vulnerable, to ask for help and show that I'm struggling was not a good mix for me. So if we use the idea of stress, right? I mean, the stress is building. There's no relief from alcohol, drugs, women. You can't figure out how to talk about it to get it done. So the, you're a pressure cooker at this point. That's correct. And, and what I heard, it's not necessarily what people were saying, but what I heard, Chris, all you need to do is just no matter what, don't drink or use. And so I desperately wanted to do that. I was very clear that for me to pick up a drink or a drug was going nowhere good. I'm a pretty smart guy, and I could see that if I did that, that bad things were going to happen. I didn't know if it was going to be hours, months, weeks, days. I had no idea. But I was clear that the worst thing I could do was to pick up a drink or a drug. So, so is this – okay, so I've heard the phrase white-knuckle sobriety. Is, is this what you're white-knuckling your way through this? I, I absolutely was. At the time, it just felt like confusion. Got it. All these people are staying sober. I'm doing what they're doing. At least that's what I felt at the time. Why can't I be okay? Okay. Which, again, went back to my shame. It's the exact same shame and discomfort I felt when I was young. It's all tied together. So after, after doing that for a while, um, you know, it, I heard a friend say at an AA meeting, she was t sharing her story. And she said, when we go back out, we don't get to decide when we come back in. And what she meant by that is once we take that drink or take that drug, that all bets are off. Because of this obsession cycle. And once correct. it kicks up and once you start getting the relief. That's correct. There's no telling when or if it'll stop. And in my mind, what I thought, because I was ripe at this point, I was uncomfortable. The stress was building. I didn't know how to talk about it. And I remember thinking, really? Is that really the case? And Ron, it wasn't that much longer down the road that it was presented. It was okay. in front of me. The alcohol, drugs. It was. Yeah. So I was with a woman yeah. one night and... The trifecta, a woman, alcohol, drugs, all presented to me. And it wasn't a, there, there really wasn't a thought process. It wasn't a, should I not do this? I don't know. Let me think about it. There was no logical progression of, I mean, and, and again, I'm pretty smart. I, I, it wasn't too long before that, that I knew the worst thing I could do was pick up an alcohol, a drink or a drug. And, you know, there, there was no defense. There was zero defense. Um, and, and I remember Right when alcohol touched my lips, the same feeling I had when I was a teenager, it happened again. Everything went away. Everything went away. You mean all the feelings? All the feelings, all the worry, all the discomfort, and more importantly, all the shame. What's wrong with me? I didn't have to deal with that. So should we assume then you were off to the races? Well, I was for that weekend. Okay. Um, and after you know the binge of that weekend, there were thoughts of, this isn't going to work. Um, the, the coming down off the weekend and the feelings were coming back because it, it, it never worked forever. It just worked for that period of time. So the feelings were coming back. I, I knew I should call someone, ask for help, um, get back into recovery. But the thought came, get something to eat, get some sleep, sleep on it. We'll wake up and figure it out. And every time when I woke up, 
no need to tell anybody. We can figure this out. So you were, you were just avoiding it? I was avoiding it. Yeah. Okay. And what seemed like, hey, we'll figure this out, was really my inability to let someone know that I, I'm not good enough to figure this out. Because of the shame. Yes. Okay. And so there was, you know, about a year time frame that every couple of months this would happen. And in between, I would jump back into meetings. I would get involved. Meetings of AA. Meetings of AA. Okay. Um, and NA. Um, and I would get involved. In NA, Narcotics Anonymous. Yes. Yes. And I would get involved. I, I, I would talk to people. I was um, carrying some service positions, um, some service work within those meetings. But it would always come back. That pressure would build again. The feelings would return. And the thoughts of drinking and using would return. Now, what's important here, in hindsight, is that the obsession would start before the first drink or the first drug. Now, I didn't understand this at the time, but I couldn't get out of my head at this time, even before the first. So that was really peculiar for me because it, it, it was not in line with me waking up in the morning and just not drinking or using no matter what. It didn't match up. And, you know, the, the feelings of that cycle and the feelings of self, self-worth of waking up in the morning days on end, because after about a year of every other month, it jumped on me and it was every day. And I would have this experience of waking up in the morning and say, I'm not going to today. It's not going to happen. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to go to a meeting. I'm going to go to an AA meeting. Okay. I'm going to work out. I'm going to eat healthy. I'm going to do all the good things that are going to be good for me. You're going to try and perform. I'm going to try and perform. And within an hour, within two hours, within four hours, not only was I drinking and using again, Ron, but it was the best idea I ever had. Drinking and, so and using was the best idea. It was. And it went That's from crazy. just hours before, the worst thing I could do is drink or use to this is the best thing I could ever do for myself. So there was something crazy going on there. And that cycle daily was its own hell. Day after day. Day after day. And that happened for months. And it happened for months, which really led me to hitting bottom. Okay, so what's the story about hitting bottom? How'd you hit bottom? Or where'd you hit bottom? Or what's the particulars? Well, you know, Ron, I, I, I really look at it today as that hitting bottom happened to me. It was nothing that I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I suffered a lot. I, I had been through, you know, there, were, there was about a week time frame in, in late October that I just was on a run. And I, I couldn't stop. I was having trouble hiding at work. Um, I was drinking and using at work. No one knew. Um, financially, I was having trouble keeping up with um, commitments and you know paying paying my mortgage, um, getting a haircut, uh, washing my clothes. I mean, just normal stuff in a day I couldn't keep up with. I had to go on a business trip to Mexico, and you know something happened when I arrived in Mexico. I don't know if it was being in another country, but I I. I became paralyzed once I got, I was on a, you know, a multiple day binge. And when I got barely made the flight, when I made it to Mexico, I was, I was done. And that's where I called, finally was able to call and ask for help again. I had spent a series of months before that, Ron, trying to ask for help at meetings. And I would be crying outside of a meeting, wanting to go in and ask for help, wanting to restart, wanting to be honest, and I couldn't do it. So I don't know what happened in another country. Maybe it felt safe 
but I called family and I called friends. I said, I can't do this. I need help. Can you help me? I don't know what to do. And so everyone responded with help. When I landed back in Greenville, my family was there and friends were there. And all I wanted to do at that point is I wanted to jump back in and get rid of the obsession and make sure everyone again was okay with me. But I, I just knew I needed to get started again. So the next morning I woke up and said, I'm going to go to a meeting tonight. Mom, dad, you can go. I have some friends that are meeting me there and, and I'm going to pick up a white chip, which is a, the significance is I'm restarting this way of life and, and letting others see it. And my intention was to drive to work, work that day, meet up with family and friends and get started back in recovery. Ron, I had no control over where my car went when I left my house that morning. Zero control. Like no power. Went. No power. I wanted it to go to work. It did not go to work. I wanted to call my parents. I wanted to call my friends and again ask them for help, but I couldn't do it. I spent the next 24 hours or so drinking and using more than I ever have in a in, in a 24-hour period. With the way that I felt after asking for help, I had never felt so low in my life. What is wrong with me that I can reach out and say, please help me, I can't do this, and then I shun that. And so I'm at, this point, at this point, that shame is all over you. Uh, it, 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 I've never felt it this strong. Okay. And, you know, I. what was interesting, in the middle of the night, that night, I, I stopped feeling the effects. I stopped feeling drunk and high. I felt stone cold sober after hours of putting alcohol and drugs into my body. No more escape. No more escape. And, and it, what was worse than that was not, not that I didn't feel high or drunk, was that all of the feelings that I was trying to keep away, that I was trying to drink and use into oblivion so that I didn't feel them. Because remember, this started working at age 15. So it was a long track record of working. It didn't work. It stopped. And here I was with myself. I couldn't take it. And, and, and I knew at that moment, either I'm not going to live anymore or something's got to change. Hmm. That sounds like a pretty desperate place. Well, and it's the worst I've ever felt. And so is, is that the bottom? Hitting that's bottom. bottom. That's, yeah. that's hitting bottom for me. That I'm either going to die or something's got to change. I can't do this anymore. I can't stand the way I feel. I can't stand the things I'm doing. And I can't stand the thought of what others are thinking of me that, that I love. I can't do it. So you're cornered. I'm absolutely cornered. So, so how does that getting cornered then translate? I mean, yeah. You're like clean and sober for a while now, right? How long has it been? Well, you know, leading up until I relapsed, it was, you know, it was almost two years. And now I, I, you know, apparently celebrated my second and third year of recovery without anyone knowing while I was relapsing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that bottom, that hitting bottom, how did that then translate into something different for you? Well, I think it was the first time, and again, this is in hindsight, that I realized that I was insufficient for solving the problem. Say more about that. 
I realized that, you know, it's like I had this flash of, I'm going to keep doing this. You know, I'm going to keep waking up and I'm going to keep drinking music. I don't know how to stop this cycle. I don't know how to get rid of the feelings. I don't know how to escape. Because I'm still having the feelings I can't escape. So there was a friend. His name was Jim. That I remember from a meeting. And I remember how kind he was. And I remember how he talked to me. And for some reason, I had his number. And I picked up the phone and I called him. And, you know, hearing his voice on the other line, it was life-saving. You know, I think my story, you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing moment when we let the ugly out that we think people will run from us, kick us out of the village. Um, and, and I didn't know what to do with that love on the other side of the phone. And that gave me just enough to call the next person. And Jim came over, you know, some other friends came over. I remember calling my dad. They had left. You know, they said, hey, if you, if you don't want help, we're gone. You know, I called him and I, I, my dad asked me, he said, well, son, I'll drive back up there. Are you going to be there? And I think I, at that moment, I was more honest than I'd ever been. I said, dad, I have no idea. I want to be, but I don't trust myself. So those type of statements were my realizing and experiencing powerlessness. We're realizing that I can't fix this. Oh, so, so that's what the powerlessness means, that you can't fix this. That's exactly it's right. Bigger than, it's bigger than me. So is is that that moment of hitting bottom? I mean, there's these external circumstances yeah. which sound awful. They just sound awful. But, but what you just described was something on your insides, not something on your outsides. It, it, it was on the insides, and I think that's what made it so scary. So I went from this moment of sheer terror because I could no longer get away from myself and it wasn't working and I can't do this anymore to the terror of never experiencing being really open and really letting, as I call the ugly, the shame out. And within a succession of a couple of hours, the dominoes are falling. And as dominoes are falling, they're falling because I'm talking to one person after the other. Okay. And people are showing up in the midst of me being the worst I've ever been in my life. And inside, I felt the worst I had ever been. People were still there. And so over those hours of people showing up and being there for me, my dad coming back up, another friend showing up. And when I couldn't take it anymore, and when I'm sobbing, puts his hand on me and says, do you believe it's worked for me? And I said, yeah. Well, can you hang on to the fact that maybe if it worked for me, it can work for you? And that was that moment of, all right, here's my wallet. Here's my keys. Here's here's my life because I can't do it. I, I don't know where my car's going to go. I don't know where my mind's going to go, but I can't be in control of it. And for the next couple of months, I didn't drive. I didn't trust myself. And, and. What I know is experiencing that level of powers, powerlessness for me 
it became so much more than waking up and just not drinking and using. There's a whole lot of things that came as a part of that that helped me stay away from alcohol and drugs. So the word that comes to mind with that, Phil, is it sounds like you found some kind of incredible willingness that you just didn't have before. That's a, that's a tough one for me. Um, you know, I, I spent most of my life with the download that if I just work hard enough, if I just do the right things, um, no matter what, I can, I can succeed. And, and what I experienced from that moment, really, it's still true today, is that that's not how my life works. If it, if it worked that way, I would have never been in that place to start with. And as scary as those moments were the first day and the first couple of days, I look back with fondness on those days now. Because I see that under that feeling of, I can't do this anymore, and I can't stay away from it, I became willing to say a whole bunch of things and do a whole bunch of things that I never would have thought I would do, which were the beginning of this recovery process. And, and freedom, not just freedom from alcohol and drugs, but freedom from that feeling that I felt for so long. So could we then say that this idea of your hitting bottom and realizing just how powerless you were, that that was the beginning point? It was the beginning point. And, and as I look back, it, it happened in different ways. That's that feeling and deep down knowledge of powerlessness. There was that excruciating pain of that moment that morning and what I thought was going to happen and that I couldn't stay away from it and that I needed help and, and the fear that came along with that. But then, you know, I think it was a couple of weeks later with my sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous, walking through different scenarios that pop up around denial, that pop up around, um, you know, that we don't really understand why it is we take that first drink, that it helped me look back and say that every single time I picked up that first drink, in my life, especially while I was relapsing, there was no good reason for it that supported me knowing the misadventures that were going to come after it. And so I remember being at dinner with my sponsor and talking through that and really seeing both intellectually and in my heart at a deep level that I need a power that can help me navigate this life, that I don't understand it and I can't fix it. And I see it working in others, but I don't have it right now. And it was a scary moment because it was kind of like being on one side of a pool that's really wide and really deep. And I can't see the other side. And you're telling me to let go of everything I know. And I don't know how to swim and push off to the other side and the unknown. That's what powerlessness was for me to really understand that. I had to let go of everything I thought I knew. And that's one of the scariest things <laughs> that's, that's it's very scary and so i found myself at dinner with my sponsor just sobbing and crying and and it, it was a different understanding than i experientially felt that morning when i gave up my wallet and my keys but they were both extremely important so 
You can't go back. You can't stay where you are. So going someplace that you don't know is your only option. And, and luckily, around that time, I wasn't driving. And mm -hmm. so I needed to find rides to meetings. And, and so I was setting up, planning every day rides to meetings. And, and these were friends that I had before, but they became different friends. The connections I was having, and I, I found myself talking about things in these rides before and after meetings. And what I found in the middle of that was a connection. And I found hope because what I found on the other side was someone that found an answer when I didn't have one. So I'm thinking of that phrase, necessity is the mother of invention. <laughs> sort of like necessity is the mother of recovery, isn't it? it? I needed to fill the fire pretty hard, pretty bad in order to, to do something different because, well, and, and I really understand today, Ron, that given the recipe of my life, and, and, and I want to be clear that being adopted, being abandoned in a, in a hospital for some number of months and, um, you know, experiencing sexual trauma and having some of the enmeshment and codependence in my life of making sure everyone was okay with me. You know, those things in my life, that's not the reason that I'm an alcoholic human addict. There are many people that experience those things that aren't alcoholic and addicts. But at the same time, that's my story. And those things happened and they affected me profoundly and they instilled in me a self-sufficiency to try and survive in this world that made sense when I was young. That as an adult, no longer worked and it only produced confusion. So I look at it today and I'm like, well, no wonder I ended up where I was. No wonder that morning that I thought was the worst morning of my life, I look at now and I see no wonder I ended up in that place. So I got to tell you, the word that comes to mind, Phil, is you were screwed. <laughs> <laughs> Completely. Yeah. And yet, and yet it was that that opened up this possibility. I guess going through hell um, proved useful in the end. It just wasn't fun. Congratulations, Phil. You're a really lucky guy. I'm extremely grateful. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Progressive Recovery which is available at ProgressiveRecovery.org and on iTunes.